Harry actually part ways, at least temporarily, and so Lloyd comes driving up on this new mean machine that he traded their van for, uh, also he could save on gas money, and uh, it seems like a really stupid move. You're watching the movie and you think, this is ridiculous, it's just another idiotic move by one of these guys, uh, but in Harry's eyes, Lloyd completely redeemed himself. He, uh, he restored hope to their situation, and he allowed them to keep going and eventually make it to Aspen with 70 miles to the gallon. Uh, remember that. So um, Now, in, to relate that to where we're at, uh, in, the, in the last two weeks, Randy, Ray, and Jeff Sample have uh, taken us through two, well, three vital truths of the, message of the message of salvation that are found in the Bible. One was why we need to be saved. Two was what from, what do we need to be saved from. And three, why we can't save ourselves. Now, that's all bad news. The situation can seem pretty bleak when you only look at those three facts, but it's really necessary to understand those because, say, I'm not convinced uh, why I need to be saved, then I'm not going to be very interested in what Jesus is all about, am I? Or say I am convinced that I need to be saved, but I don't know what I need to be saved from, so that kind of leaves me in a place where, uh, you know, well, okay, what am I looking for? What kind of Savior do I need? I'm really still in the dark. At that point, but if I know why I need to be saved and what from, but I don't know why I can't save myself, well, I'm probably going to end up trying to do it myself, trying to earn my own salvation, and I'm just going to be spinning my wheels um, getting nowhere. So even though it's all bad news, it's crucial to understand those three things that, that we've seen the last three week, uh, two weeks if you've been here. But tonight we get to turn our attention to some of the good news a little more fully, which is good. I get to be the bearer of good news, so that's kind of a nice thing. Uh, hope gets restored a little bit tonight, and this good news is wrapped up in the image of redemption. Redemption. The word redemption actually comes from uh, the business world, and you've heard it used different ways. You redeem coupons and things like that, but it's a commercial term used to describe salvation as a business transaction of some type. Uh, in its most basic sense, redemption just means uh, the buying back of something that's been lost. It's the securing of a release by the payment of a ransom. And at the heart of this image of redemption is the idea of paying a price to regain something that would otherwise be forfeited. Now, in any given redemption, there are basically three parts to any any kind of redemption. And there's all different kinds that we'll see in a second. But there's three parts. One is there's a property that's been lost and needs to be bought back. Or, and in other cases, a person in bondage to slavery who needs to be redeemed and freed. So there's a property or a person that needs to be redeemed. The second uh, part of any redemption is a price that has to be paid in order, that the property, uh, in order to redeem that property or person. The price to be paid. And then third, there's got to be a person who's able and willing to redeem it who's able and willing to pay the redemption price. Now, there are, there are many different examples of redemption in the Old Testament, but in one way or another, they all contain these three elements, property lost, uh, the price to be paid, and the person to pay that price. One example, you can think back to the, uh, the, Israel, the Israelite exodus out of Egypt, uh, when the property there, in that case, would be uh, the property in need of redemption was God's own people, enslaved to the Egyptian and in bondage, and the one willing to redeem them 
was God Himself who said, I'm the Lord, I'll bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And what price did He pay? Well, God said to Moses, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. So, in other words, God really paid for Israel's redemption in this case by paying back the Egyptians for all that they had done to them. So, the Exodus was a milestone example uh, in the life of Israel of redemption in the history of God's people. But this imagery of redemption actually was more of a common thing in everyday life. It was something that, that happened all the time in the life of people in the Bible times. Um, of all the different types, the most common seems to be when people would redeem their land. Uh, this would happen where somebody might, they may have to sell their land because they run into debt they can't pay. Um, and they have to sell their land to get money or to pay their debts. And all of a sudden, uh, they're able to later redeem their land by buying it back. There was actually a law in place where they could redeem their land by buying it back. There were two ways, actually, they could redeem it. One was for themselves to buy it back if they came back into money. And the second was uh, if a relative would make the payment for them. And so the Old Testament law regulated all kinds of redemptions, like redeeming animals, like donkeys, sheep, goats. There were provisions for redeeming certain persons um, who needed to be redeemed. For example, if, uh, if my ox was out in the field and runs through some guy with its horns and kills him, well, by the law, my life would actually be forfeited by that. But because it was an intentional murder, there was a provision where I could pay a price to cover that and uh, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't have to surrender my life. So in each of these cases, um, what was considered lost could be re- regained provided that somebody was able and willing to redeem it. Uh, another example is redemption of a slave, freeing of a slave. And uh, the book of Hosea gives us the most famous example of that where God wanted to show how faithful he was to his people even when they broke his covenant over and over again. So he, he decides to make Hosea a living sermon illustration. His life portrayed what he wanted to teach his people. And he tells Hosea to go out and marry this prostitute named Gomer. What a name. Um, so he marries Gomer. And, uh, and he's supposed to remain faithful to her no matter how adulterous she becomes. And it was no shock, it's no shock to any of us that this former prostitute ends up running off with another man. Uh, she falls into poverty and eventually into slavery. But God sends Hosea to redeem her out of slavery. Uh, he probably had to go to the slave market and pay some set price to free her and take her back. And so Gomer's freedom, her emancipation, was a picture of God's redeeming grace, which goes out to find us and buy us back when we sell ourselves into the slavery of sin. So as God's people would go through their daily lives, they'd redeem livestock, they'd have to buy back somehow, or they'd have to redeem land or even free slaves. Uh, as they would go through these different experiences, gradually they, they, began, they began to get hands-on uh, experience with what redemption was all about. And God was teaching his people Here's what redemption will look like. And he was broadening the spectrum of what redemption would cover. And eventually, they came to learn, God, uh, learn to know God as their Redeemer and to call themselves the redeemed of the Lord, which we just sang. Let the redeemed of the Lord give him glory. And uh, redemption became the cry of their worshiping hearts, just like it is ours. Uh, when they would sing things like, Come near to my soul and rescue me, redeem me because of my enemies. That's Psalm 69. Or they would sing like in Psalm 103, 
Praise the Lord, O my soul, who redeems your life from the pit. They took what they learned from everyday business transactions and used it to proclaim the message of salvation that God had worked in their life. Um, Psalm 130, which actually is another song that we sing a lot of times, it, it actually says, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love and with Him is full redemption. He Himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. So God's people find so much hope in redemption. And one of the most beautiful stories of redemption is told in the book of Ruth. And if you want to open your Bibles with me, we'll be looking here and there. I'm not going to be reading through, uh, but I want to kind of do a survey of Ruth and show how it points us to the redemption that we have in Christ. Um, In the book of Ruth, the story actually begins very sad. Um, It's a tragedy in the beginning. Through a series of circumstances, a Jewish woman named Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth, who's a foreigner from Moab, uh, who had sworn allegiance to the God of Israel, uh, Naomi and Ruth find themselves walking from Moab to Bethlehem. Now, they had both just lost their husbands. So, uh, as if that wasn't sorrowful enough, that also left them without food, without land, without provision for life. So, these two women, Naomi and Ruth, are are traveling to Bethlehem because it was Naomi's hometown. And in those days, uh, the people of Israel actually had a welfare system set up. Uh, it's actually pretty smart uh, for the way that they lived. And God had laid this out for them in Leviticus. In the, in the system, the poor, especially widows, orphans, and uh, aliens from other countries, they were allowed to walk through the fields and gather whatever grain was left over that the, harvest, uh, the harvesters had left behind. So Ruth just happens to meet every, nearly every qualification for this. Not only was she miserably poor, but she also was a young widow, and she's from an outside country, from Moab. So, so we read in Ruth 2, verse 2, uh, that being an enterprising young woman, Ruth says to Naomi, her mother-in-law, she says, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi agrees and, and Ruth goes out and gets to work, and this was the means by which God provided for her daily bread. But there was still a problem. Uh, Ruth was, remember I said there were three parts to any redemption. Ruth was the property lost, the, prop, the person in need of redemption. And here's why. She, she had barely enough food to live, so she was nearly destitute. She had lost her husband, so she's still in great sorrow over that. She faced great danger because... Here's, she's this young, probably, you know, fairly attractive, young, foreign girl in a strange land. And it was in a time that the Bible describes as every man doing what was right in his own eyes. So people just did whatever they wanted. And uh, who knows what they're going to do when this young girl is out in the fields. Um, so Naomi was actually very fearful that, of what might happen to Ruth when she's out in the fields with these workmen. And all these difficulties meant that Ruth needed a redeemer, someone to restore her, to give her an heir. Um, her mother-in-law, Naomi, had a piece of land that she shared with her husband. They were going to have to sell it. And uh, that was kind of a big deal because they all wanted their land and their livestock and everything to stay in the family. So they were going to have to sell this land. And they needed someone to buy it back in and be their redeemer and keep it in the family. So Ruth and Naomi both were found in need of redemption I mean, she was in an economic, emotional, social bondage. 
And since she couldn't produce an heir on her own, there was no way she could redeem herself. And this points to us too. Ruth's impoverishment and her sad state at this point should remind us of our own spiritual poverty. This is where we all have been at some point. Uh, We too have been desperately in need of a redeemer. We were created to belong to God himself, but we've become slaves to our sin, which brings suffering and alienation, much like Ruth experienced. And even worse, our sin actually puts us in intense bondage that we can't escape ourselves. We can only be released by redemption. But thankfully, the message of salvation promises release from our sins. And in fact, the, the Greek word for redemption comes from a little word called luo. It's based on this word luo, which is one of the first words any seminary student uh, learns when they're learning Greek. This is the verb that they use to learn all the endings. And I remember having to do this, luo, luo, And uh, you have to learn all the endings of that word. But it's a very simple word, and it just means to loose or to loosen. And the idea when it's used in the, in the case of redemption is actually the idea of setting something or someone free by cutting bonds. So the word redemption actually has this idea of cutting bonds off of something that's bound up, something that's in bondage. And so in redemption, it actually paints a picture of uh, someone being freed and released from their bonds by the payment of a ransom price. Now, in the New Testament, every word for redemption is used in connection with the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the one who releases us from our slavery to sin. As Romans 3 says, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. But not only has Jesus redeemed us from our sin, but he's redeemed us from all its miserable consequences. Uh, Ruth was in need of a redeemer, and there was a lot of bad consequences involved. And for us, there's a lot involved with our sin, like what? Guilt? Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. So guilt is relieved because we're forgiven. But what about the wrath of God? That's a consequence. But Galatians 3 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So wrath, God's wrath is turned away from us. And one day, the New Testament tells us that he'll even release us. He'll, he'll cut the bonds even of death. Uh, when Paul wrote, Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? He was actually quoting from the prophet Hosea, who we mentioned a minute ago, uh, knowing that Hosea had actually been promised redemption from death itself. Uh, Hosea 13, 14 says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? So in our sin and our guilt, we too are lost property. We are the people in need of redemption but as we're going to continue to see Jesus, uh, in Jesus, we have a Redeemer who provides exactly the kind of redemption that we need from uh, a release from sin, guilt, God's wrath, and even death. So, like I said earlier, there are three requirements in any redemption. The first is the property that's lost or the person that needs redemption. And we saw Ruth's need for redemption and even our own. But now the second requirement is there's got to be a person who's willing and able uh, to redeem. There's got to be a person who'll step up to the plate and pay the price. And this is actually where Ruth's story gets a little more interesting. In the providence of God, uh, when Ruth goes out to gather grain, the leftover grain, 
it just so happens that she ends up doing this in the field of probably the most eligible bachelor in Bethlehem. Uh, this guy's name is Boaz, and he was everything a young girl could want in a husband. He was godly in his speech. He uh, spoke uh, with a blessing to his workers and spoke naturally and comfortably with them about spiritual things. We see that in verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and 12. Um, like I said, I'm just going to survey over some of this, but he was godly in his speech. He was obedient to God's word. In verses 8 and 9, it says he allowed the poor to gather leftover grain from his field like God had intended. Uh, he was generous with what he had, going above and beyond to provide Ruth with extra food and water. And he was pure and just in his conduct. Uh, he protected the women in his fields from, um, from sexual misconduct and abuse by the men there. He protected them. And to top all that off, as if his character wasn't good enough, the guy was loaded. Uh, Boaz just happened to be really rich. Uh, the text in verse, let's see, I think it's 2-1, says that he was a man of standing, which means that he had uh, wealth and power. So, when the Israeli version of People magazine uh, had its annual feature of hottest bachelors, Boaz was probably on their cover with his golden fields behind him. Um, so this this is looking pretty good for Ruth as she's you know she's working for this guy, and we of course know that they're going to end up getting connected here. But even more importantly than all that was this that Boaz was was related to Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi, and so because he was a relative, he was qualified to be Ruth's redeemer. When Ruth came home from the harvest, uh, she tells Naomi that she's been working in the fields of Boaz, and Naomi is thrilled. Uh, she says, may he be blessed by the Lord. Boaz is a close relative of, our, of ours, and he's one of our redeemers. And so it's essential to remember that redemption was always a family matter. It always happened within the family. It was the right and responsibility um, of a close relative to redeem someone's land or their person. Um, and this close relative would be called a goel, that's the Hebrew word, or a kinsman redeemer. You may have heard of that. And this was the way God has, had established things, for it to be a relative who redeems uh, for someone. And so the impoverished or the imprisoned were to be rescued by their own families. If an Israelite was in a desperate financial situation, he could sell his field, or he could even sell himself into slavery for a while, but the responsibility for redeeming him out of that or redeeming his field for the family fell to his relatives. So that the ransom, uh, or so that his name and property would never leave the family. It was very important to keep it in the family. So God designed this all so the ransom would be paid by those who had the greatest personal interest uh, in this person's redemption, their own flesh and blood. So again, here, this gives us another insight into the re redemption that we have in Jesus. Um, like everything else in Scripture, we've got to understand the book of Ruth in relation to the whole history of the redemptive work of God, in relation to Christ's person and work. Ruth and Boaz are just part of that redemptive history that culminated in Christ's coming. Uh, there's a genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth uh, in chapter 4, and in verse 22 we learn that uh, their great-grandson, Ruth and Boaz, had a great-grandson named David. King David, who was also a kinsman redeemer in that he redeemed the Israelites uh, by helping regain their land of promise. But even David, as a redeemer, was waiting for a greater redeemer, a savior to redeem all of God's people from sin and from death. And the name of that redeemer comes at the end of another genealogy, which is in Matthew's gospel. 
uh, in which the family line begins with Abraham, runs through Ruth, runs through David, and ends with the name Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And all of this makes it very clear that there's a connection between Boaz, the Redeemer, and Jesus, who is our kinsman Redeemer. This right, this responsibility to redeem, always rests on the shoulders of a family member. And so in order to accomplish our redemption, it was actually necessary for God, the eternal Son, to become a man. The incarnation was necessary uh, for our redemption because we had to have somebody who was in the family, in the family of humanity. It had to be paid by a flesh and blood uh, man, by, by a member of our human family. It couldn't have been paid by uh, an angel or an animal. Um, my little cute miniature schnauzer, Ellie, um, who I should have up here somewhere. There she is. Ellie, sweet little thing as she is. Um, her full name is Eleanor Rigby, just if that rings any bells for you. Um, Ellie is not qualified to redeem me. Now, Lindsay and I, uh, we treat her like a prominent member of the family a lot of times. Uh, she gets a lot more special treatment than uh, some people do. Um, but she's not a human. She's not a relative. She's not qualified because she's not uh, in the family. She doesn't meet the qualifications. But even uh, my own father isn't qualified. Um, he's going to love that I threw this picture up here, but I guess he'll never see it. This is at his, I think, 50th birthday, and that's him sticking his head through the zero of 50. That's just so you see where I get it. Um, so he, even my own father isn't qualified. Now, he's my blood relative, but he's, he's a sinner too, just like me. He needs redemption as much as I do, and only a perfect human being can qualify. That only leaves Jesus as an option. Um, so our redemption is one of the primary reasons for the incarnation of Christ, for God becoming a man, taking on flesh like us. Uh, Hebrews 2 comes to mind, uh, which makes this glorious truth very clear when the writer says in uh, Hebrews 2.11, and listen to this, he says, both the one who sanctifies Christ and the ones who are sanctified, Christians, are of the same family or the same source. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, here's the remarkable truth he's giving to us. Jesus can call us brothers and sisters because he's made of the same stuff we are. He wasn't always, but he came to earth that he created, as we sang a minute ago. Um, he came to the earth that, we, that he created and became poor and took on flesh and became one of us. He became like us and is our relative. Uh, Hebrews 2 continues in verse 14 saying this, and this is really important. Uh, Since the children, us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death and free those who were held in lifelong slavery in their fear of death. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement or propitiation for the sins of the people. So for Jesus to be our Redeemer, it was necessary for him to become our kinsman. He had to be a relative, not just to be God the Son, but to be the Son of Man as well. And because he became a real flesh and blood person, uh, a human being, he was able to purchase our true redemption. He was 
qualified to do it. He could step up to the plate. And so Jesus is the person that we look to for our redemption. So in, re- in the scheme of redemption, we've seen the property that needs to be redeemed, the person that has to step up to redeem it. And the third part of any redemption is the actual payment of a price. There's got to be a price paid to secure this redemption. And coming back to Ruth's story, this is actually the point in her uh, romantic adventure that things uh, get more complicated. There's a, a complication that arises that's unexpected for her. Um, now, let me set this up. Her, uh, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, decides to do a little matchmaking. She says, okay, you're working in Boaz's field. Mm, this is looking good. I think I want to set this thing up. And I know a few people like that, uh, mothers, mother-in-laws, who like to get in the business and um, like to work some magic with your kids. Uh, you know, more power to you if you do that. But uh, her mother-in-law starts to do this matchmaking and begins to instruct Ruth on how to get this guy to marry her, to be her redeemer. And so Ruth follows her plan, and I won't go into all the detail about it right now, but essentially she proposes marriage to Boaz. And by implication, she also was asking him to redeem her and to raise up an heir for Naomi's family, which would also include Boaz having to buy back Naomi's property to keep it in the family. So this is going to involve some personal cost for Boaz because he's going to have to buy some land. He's got to spend a bunch of money. He's got to uh, raise an heir. He's got to live with, he's got to take care of two women um, that he wasn't before. So there's some cost involved for him. But apparently he, he cared for Ruth a lot uh, because he was happy to be her kinsman redeemer. Now the problem, the complication that came up is this. He's got a competitor. Um, he's not the only one who's got um, the rights to do this. There was another man in town who was also eligible to be the redeemer for Ruth and for Naomi. And he was actually a nearer relative than Boaz was. So he actually got uh, the, the right of first refusal. So the question becomes here uh, in the romantic story, will Ruth get her man or will uh, the other man get her first? Now, the good thing is that Boaz wasn't the kind of guy who's going to sit around and wait for something to happen. The next day, he goes and finds this other guy and uh, he beats him up. No, he didn't. Um, no, when he finds him, he just casually lays out the facts for him. You know, he's very polite. He says, um, hey, Naomi, who's come back from Moab, uh, she's selling this piece of land that belonged to her brother Elimelech, uh, to our brother Elimelech, rather, as her husband. Uh, and he says, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and uh, suggest that maybe you should buy the land. And uh, if you'll redeem it, do so. But if not, tell me and I'll do it. Um, for no one has the right to do it except you. And uh, then I come next in line. So he just kind of lays it out there. And uh, it sounds like a great deal to this guy at this point because, um, you know, he, well, Boaz wanted to take it himself. So already the guy's going, well, you want it. It must be a good deal. Um, but he's thinking, okay, I can add to my estate. That's great. I can add some land, um, prime piece of real estate to manage, and eventually pass on to his family. So he jumps at the offer and uh, eagerly says, I'll redeem it. Uh, you see that in chapter 4, verse 4. But Boaz um, then introduces the catch. He's a, he's a smooth negotiator here. He introduces the catch to the deal, and he tells this guy in chapter 4, verse 5, he says, on the day that you redeem that land, uh, from you buy this land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow. 
in order to maintain the, maintain the name of the dead with his property. So the point was, in redeeming this land, he's also got to be responsible to take care of Ruth and Naomi, and furthermore, he's required to raise up an heir for them. So Boaz is at this point trying to impress upon the guy uh, the high cost of this redemption, and uh, this near kinsman simply wanted to add land to his family's estate, but there were financial obligations involved with taking care of two women, uh, raising an heir, raising a child. Some of you know the costs of that. Um, I'm about to find out in two months. And not only that, but an heir would eventually be the one who receives this purchased land, not the members of this guy's family. So uh, he would be investing in land that wouldn't be his to keep. It would eventually go to, uh, it would always belong to Naomi, and then eventually it would go down to Ruth's children. So this was a bad business deal for the guy, and he just jumped at the opportunity when it sounded good, and now he's going, okay, this is a bad deal. Uh, I'm investing my own money in land that I'll never truly own. It's going to cost me a bunch. And it was nothing but sacrifice. And now he realizes this fact, and he says to Boaz in chapter 4, verse 6, I cannot redeem it because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. So he washes his hands of it, and he does the whole... Uh, ritualistic thing that they do to agree on something and he takes off his sandal. That's what, that's what I do too when I want to agree on something. I just take my sandal off and there we go. And um, It's a done deal. So he's not going to do it. And twice he says, I cannot redeem it. But the fact was, he simply wasn't willing to take the financial hit. Uh, it was a sacrifice he wasn't willing to make. So um, the good news is, Boaz was able and willing to redeem it. Um, he was able because he had wealth, but more than that, he was willing to make the sacrifice that would actually cost him. Boaz was willing to pay the full price of redemption. Now, again, as in the other two parts of redemption, it's really easy here to see the parallels between Boaz as a redeemer, the, the redemption that Boaz provided for Ruth, and the redemption that God provides us in Jesus. In both ca- cases, there's something to be redeemed from its lost condition. In both cases, there's a person to redeem it who's a close relative and is able to do it. And in both cases, there's a redeemer willing to personally underwrite the whole cost of redemption, even at great cost to himself. Now, we use a lot of different words for salvation. We use words like redemption um, and salvation as a general term. We use a lot of different kinds of words And uh, a lot of times, I know I do this, we'll use them interchangeably as if they're all synonyms. And they all kind of relate to the same thing. But when the Bible uses this image of redemption, it's always serving to emphasize a specific aspect of the saving work of Christ. It always emphasizes this, the costliness of our salvation. There was a price that Jesus had to pay to purchase souls out of their bondage to sin. And whenever... The New Testament speaks of redemption. It invariably emphasizes how high the price was to make this purchase. Uh, Jesus said himself in Mark 10:45 that he came not to serve, uh, not to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life, the redemption that Jesus had to pay for our redemption was his very own life. In other words, he died in our place, laying down his own life as the substitute sin-bearer, paying the penalty we owed for our sins, even though he himself was without sin completely. 
Jesus is the only true Redeemer because no one else would or even could pay the full price of our redemption. Uh, No other religion even makes the bold claim that the one true God shed His own blood to save His people. And yet redemption requires that ultimate sacrifice. Jesus was willing to pay that price in full because He loves His people. Listen to what... uh, this great Princeton theologian, B.B. Warfield, uh, once said, and I think this is just, he sums it up really well. He says, There's not one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than that of Redeemer. When, whenever we pronounce it, the cross is plastered before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that He paid a mighty price for it. So what's our response to this great redemption that came at such a high price to Jesus? Can we continue uh, just living our life as if nothing has changed and live live for our own desires? No. We know that uh, 1 Corinthians even says in in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it says, To you and to me, you are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong body and soul to our Redeemer. And like everything else in our salvation, our redemption is all for God's glory. So may we as redeemed people, redeemed of the Lord, live our lives for the glory of the One who redeemed us. Let's pray and then I'd like for us to sing one more song together. Let's pray together before we do that. Father, I thank You that You redeem Lord, that you are the God who is willing to step up to the plate and pay the price for your people. Uh, Lord, we, we don't deserve it. And um, Lord, we know we can't save ourselves. So, Lord, we thank you that you paid the price. You've paid it in full. There's nothing left for us to do. And Lord, we give you glory and ask that you be honored in in our words and in our lives tonight. Would you do that for Christ's sake? Amen.